announcements before we get started um, tonight. Uh, this is this morning will come from Psalm 27. Psalm 27. We're going to be looking today at Paul's boldness in the face of his accusers. Boldness in the face of the enemy. We've been looking at Paul's uh, trials in Jerusalem for many weeks. And today we will see his boldness as he addresses the Jewish Sanhedrin, the Jewish council of chief priests and the elders. In Psalm 27, a psalm of David also speaks of courage and boldness in the face of opposition. Psalm 27, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked came against me to eat up my flesh, my enemies and foes, they stumbled and fell. Though an army may encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war may rise against me, in this I will be confident. One thing I have desired of the Lord that I will seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For in the time of trouble, he shall hide me in his pavilion. In the secret place of his tabernacle, he shall hide me. He shall help me, set me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. Therefore, I will offer sacrifices of joy in his tabernacle. I will sing, yes, I will sing praises to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry with my voice. Have mercy also upon me and answer me. When you said, seek my face, my heart said to you, your face, Lord, I will seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my help. Do not leave me nor forsake me, O God of my salvation. When my father and my mother forsake me, then the Lord will take care of me. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me in a smooth path because of my enemies. Do not deliver me to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and such as breathe out violence. I would have lost heart unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait on the Lord. Be of good courage. He shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord God, we're so thankful this day that we can come and be hidden in your pavilion. Lord, that we can come and find refuge and rest in the secret place of your tabernacle. And Lord, we're thankful for your protection and your provision. And Lord, we're thankful for your grace toward us in Christ Jesus. And we're thankful that we can run to you and find safety, find shelter, under the cover of your wings. And Lord, we pray that you would grant us grace to seek your face. And we pray that you would not hide your face from us, that you would not turn us away, but that you would take care of us and visit with us and meet with us in this place. And Lord, we pray that as you meet with us, we would behold your glory and all of your majesty, and may our hearts be drawn to offer you our praise, our adoration, and our worship. We worship you, O oh, our Father, for your kindness and your grace and your protection and your provision for us. We worship you, O oh, God the Son, for your sacrifice on our behalf 
and your glory and your present ministry of intercession for us at the right hand of the Father. We worship you, O Holy Spirit, your presence with us, making our hearts alive to hear and understand the word of truth and applying the word to us and enabling us to walk in truth and to stand before our enemies with boldness and courage and faith. Lord, help us as we seek to worship you in spirit and in truth. And it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Right, I invite you to take out your hymnal and turn to hymn number one. If you would, take your Bibles as we continue to worship and turn to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 23, or Acts chapter 22, verse 30. We'll read the last verse of chapter 22 and then flow into chapter 23 as we see Paul now brought before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council, the Jewish Supreme Court. The commander has tried to figure out what's going on. Why are these people trying to kill him? He can't get an answer from the, uh, uh, the crowd because everybody's shouting one thing and another. He can't get an answer from Paul because Paul spoke to the crowd in Aramaic and he can't understand him. And uh, he can't torture Paul to make him confess of a crime because Paul is a Roman citizen. And so he has brought him before the Jewish Supreme Court, the religious council, the council consisting of the chief priests and the elders of the people to try to figure out what Paul has done that has made all of these people want to kill him, uh, almost beating him to death, and they probably would have beat him to death had the Roman soldiers not arrived. And so Paul has been arrested, he has been bound, he spent the night in prison, and now the commander releases him from his bonds and stands him before the Jewish council to figure out what in the world this man has done to make the crowd so angry and to make everybody in Jerusalem literally want to beat him to death. And so we see Paul standing before the Supreme Court, the Sanhedrin, the council, the group composed of all the chief priests, the elders, the fathers of Israel. And we see Paul's courage, his boldness in the face of his accusers. So Acts chapter 22, beginning in verse 30. The next day, because he wanted to know for certain, the Roman commander wanted to know for certain why he was accused by the Jews, he released him from his bonds and commanded the chief priests and all their council to appear and brought Paul down and set them before them. Then Paul, looking earnestly at the council, said, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. For you sit to judge me according to the law, and do you command me to be struck contrary to the law? And those who stood by said, do you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brethren, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Let's pray together. Lord God, we're so thankful for this opportunity to gather together today. And Lord, we're thankful for your word where you have spoken to us in a way that is perfect. And Lord, we're thankful for the good Dr. Luke who under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit faithfully recorded this event for us. And we thank you that in your 
providence and your preservation. You have brought your word to us exactly as, as you would have us to have it. In a language that we can read and understand. So that we may read these words of truth. But Lord, we also recognize that uh, our understanding is limited. And we are dependent upon your Holy Spirit to help us to understand these words. And then to rightly apply them to our lives. Lord, I pray that you would guard and protect us. Lord, that we would never have to stand before accusers. That we would never be in a situation where we are on trial for our lives. Well, we are having to stand before the Supreme Court to offer a defense for doing nothing other than speaking faithfully of the Lord Jesus. But Lord, we do pray that if that day comes, that you would help us to have the boldness and the courage, Paul. And Lord, we know that even though we may not stand on trial for our lives, we face opposition every day. Those who disagree with the gospel, the good news of Jesus. And Lord, we pray for boldness. Pray for courage. And Lord, we pray that we might be able to, like Paul, stand and say, I have lived in a good conscience before God until this very day. And Lord, we pray that you would grant us humble, teachable spirits. And help us to do that which brings you glory. Help us to be bold and courageous, even in the face of opposition. And it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Right, so we've looked at Paul in Jerusalem as he went to the temple, as he had been counseled by the elders of the, uh, of the church at Jerusalem, that there was people spreading rumors about him, that he was preaching against the people, he was preaching against the law, he was preaching against the temple, the holy place, and so they counseled him to go with these Christian uh, these Jewish Christians, Jewish believers who had taken a Nazarite vow to go with them to the temple to pay their sacrifices as they came to the end of the days of their purification, to go with them to the temple. And when Paul was there, the mob began to shout and to scream that this is him, this is that man we've been telling you about. This is the man that has been preaching against the temple and against the law of Moses and against the people of Israel. And they began to, they drug him out of the temple and began to beat him and very likely would have beat him to death had the Roman soldiers not arrived. And as we said, John had, Paul has been arrested. He's been bound. He spent the night in prison. And the commander is desperately trying to figure out what, ha, what has happened, what Paul has done, while everybody, why everybody in Jerusalem wants to kill him. And so he commands the chief priest to to bring their counsel together. And this was unusual. This was not uh, uh, something that would normally happen. But the commander wanted to know, the Roman commander wanted to know why there had been a riot, why there was such turmoil, and why everybody was so angry at this man named Paul. And so they convene the council. They bring Paul, and he sets him before the council. And it's almost like uh, nobody really knows what to do. The chief priest had not convened it. He had not called this meeting. He had not gathered the council. This was not a regular meeting of their, of their, of their chief priests and their elders, but this would have been called by the Roman commander, and, and maybe they're not even wearing their, their garments and their attire. We're going to see that Paul does not recognize the chief priest. And so they gather together. They stand Paul before them, and it seems like there is an awkward silence. The commander has called them together, Paul is standing before them, and we're told that Paul 
simply looks earnestly at the council. Chapter 23, verse 1, Paul looking earnestly at the council. So they stand before him. There's this silence, you know, normally if they were having a, a normal trial, the, 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 the charge would be read, the charge would be presented. People would know why this man was standing before them, and that's what the commander wanted to know anyway. What is the charge? Of what crime is this man accused? What has he done that has been worthy of death and that this crowd is determined to beat him to death? There is no charge. There is no accusation. There has been no indictment. And so Paul is simply standing before the council and we do see his boldness. Luke tells us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that he looks earnestly at the council. And this word translated earnestly means that it's an intense word. That he is looking at them and he is looking at them face to face. He is looking at them eyeball to eyeball. Paul stands before these accusers, before the chief priests, before the elders with boldness and courage. You know, he's not intimidated by them. He's not ashamed that the crowd has grabbed a hold of him and brought him uh, out of the temple, shutting the door behind him and beating him almost to death. He was not ashamed that he had spent the night in prison and in chains and bound to the walls. He's not looking down at his feet in shame or embarrassment. He's not intimidated by them and kind of looking away from them. No, he is bold and he is courageous and he is looking them in the face. He is looking at them eye to eye. We see his boldness and his confidence. He knows that he has done nothing wrong. He knows that he has not broken the, 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 the law. He knows that he has done all that is required. He knows that the things that have been said about him are lies. And so he is not ashamed. He is not afraid. He is not intimidated. No, he stands before his accusers with boldness and with his eyes even challenging them to accuse him of doing something wrong. He stands before them bold. He's not apologetic. He doesn't say, oh, I am so sorry. I am so sorry that I offended you. I'm so sorry that I, that I uh, went into the temple. I'm so sorry that I've gone to all these nations and told Gentiles that they can become Christians. I'm sorry that I said something that made you mad. I'm sorry that I offended you. None of that. No, Paul is confident. Paul is bold. Paul is courageous. He is not apologetic. He is not intimidated. He is not ashamed. He is not afraid. He stands before them with boldness. And we see this awkward silence as they have gathered. They don't really know why. The commander has called them uh, to have a meeting. So they come together. Paul standing before them. This is not a normal event. They don't have an order of service. They don't have a, uh, a protocol of what they can do. They're just standing there kind of awkwardly. There is no charge. And then finally, Paul, Paul himself, the accused, addresses the council. And it's interesting how he does it. Look at what he says in verse 23. Men and brethren. And so he is standing before the high priest, the chief priest, and all the elders of the people. And he does not address them with lofty titles. He does not address them with uh, uh, their, the, the, the titles that they have bestowed upon themselves. He does not address them with the titles perhaps that they have even purchased. Uh, the title of chief priest or high priest and uh, 
uh, we, we see in the other part of the New Testament that the, uh, the chief priest sometimes can purchase his title, his position from the Romans who are really in charge. Paul does not use those titles. He simply calls them men and brethren. And we can compare that to, you know, this is, uh, this is like the fifth time that we have seen a meeting of the Sanhedrin uh, in the New Testament. We saw Jesus on trial before them. We have seen Peter and John on trial before them. We have seen all 12 of the apostles on trial before them. We have seen Stephen before the Sanhedrin, before he was stoned to death. And now we see Paul standing before the Sanhedrin. And it's interesting when you look at Peter and John in Acts chapter 4, when they stood before the council, they addressed the council as rulers of the people and elders of Israel. And maybe this was the standard way that one that was accused was to approach the, the council, to address them as rulers of the people, elders of Israel, acknowledge their place of authority, their position over them. And even Stephen called them brethren and fathers. But Paul addresses them as peers, men and brethren. And actually we see that Paul is one of them. We'll see, and he's already told them, you know, that he was a Pharisee, that he sat at the feet of Gamaliel, the, the respected rabbi. And it's actually Gamaliel that came to the defense of the apostles earlier. And so Paul addresses them not as a subordinate, not as an accused person, not as a person who had been brought before them to defend himself from a crime, but he addresses them as peers, men and brethren. And so in his boldness, he is not intimidated by their position. He's not uh, afraid of the power that they have over him. He is not in any way ashamed or, or, or afraid of their power. He addresses them, he addresses them with boldness, and he addresses them as peers, men and brethren. And so we see the Apostle Paul standing before these accusers with boldness. We see his courage, we see his confidence. He is not ashamed, he is not intimidated, he is not afraid. He is bold and courageous. And may we be able to stand against people who accuse us or disagree with us. May we be able to stand with boldness. Not being ashamed, not intimidated, not afraid when we are accused of making testimony, being witnesses for the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think there's two things that we see in this text that, uh, uh, that, that can enable us to stand before our accusers with boldness. Certainly not an inclusive list, but two things that come from this particular text. How was Paul able to confront his accusers, to stand before his accusers with boldness? The first thing that we see in this text, the first way that Paul was able to stand before his accusers with boldness is that he had lived with a good conscience before God. If you want to stand before your accusers, your enemies, your opposition with boldness, Strive to live your whole life with a good conscience before God. That's what Paul says in verse 23. Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. Now the conscience is that moral ability that God has given us as humans, as people created in his own image. We have an ability to make decisions and live according to what we know and what we believe to be right and wrong. 
Paul in Romans chapter 1 talks about, or Romans chapter 2, I'm sorry, talks about God's law being written on the heart of men. And, God's, and, and, and men's consciences can excuse them or accuse them. And so we have a part of being created in the image of God is having a knowledge of that which is right and that which is wrong. And when we do something that is wrong against our conscience, then we are accused. If we do something we know is not right, our conscience accuses us. If we do something according to the law, then our conscience excuses us, Paul says. And so Paul says, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. And so the conscience is that what God has given us to be able to live according to what we know to be true or to the traditions and what is commonly accepted as moral and right among the people uh, among whom we live. And so Paul says, I have lived in good conscience before God until this day. And because he, his conscience before God was clear, he was able to stand before his accusers with boldness. Let's think a little bit about this for a minute. You know, Paul says, I have lived in good conscience before God until now. And so God, Paul is saying that all of my life I have done what I believed that God would have me to do. All of my life, I have lived in a way that I, my conscience is clear before God. I have lived in a way doing those things that I sincerely and genuinely believe that God wanted me to do. And you know what that means? That means that even before he was a Christian, before he was converted, when he was Saul, he was doing exactly what he thought that God would have him to do. So one thing that we have to know about our conscience, our conscience helps us to make decisions and to evaluate right and wrong. Our conscience can accuse us or excuse us. But our conscience is not an infallible guide. Our conscience will not always lead us into the truth. Our conscience can be misinformed. Our conscience can be weak. Our conscience can be seared. All things that the Bible talks to us about our conscience. Our conscience can be put, to, put down and, uh, and lied to, deceived. And so our conscience is not an infallible and an errant guide. It is not perfect. And when Paul, before he was Paul, when he was Saul, when Saul was grabbing Christians, men and women, and dragging them out of their church and dragging them to prison... He was doing what he thought God would have him to do. He thought that the father, followers of Jesus were enemies of God. He thought that, the, that Jesus was a blasphemer and got ex exactly what he deserved by claiming to be equal with God, equal with the Father, claiming to have been risen from the dead, claiming to be the, the, the once and for all sacrifice. Paul was doing what he thought was right. He thought he was being a servant of God as he persecuted the church. He was genuinely, honestly doing what he thought God would have him to do. And he was actually fulfilling the words of Jesus himself. In John 16, 2, when Jesus gathers his, his disciples into the upper room on the last night of his earthly life in his final farewell address, he tells those men in John 16, 2, 
The time is coming that whoever kills you will think he offers God service. And so Jesus told his disciples, a day is going to come when people will persecute you, they will arrest you, they will take you into jail, they will try to kill you, destroy you, and they will think they are doing God's service. They will think that they are doing what God would have them to do. And, and Jesus very well talking about the Pharisee Saul. He is going to kill you, and he is going to think that by killing you, he is doing service to God. And so Paul says, I have always, I have always done what I genuinely thought that God would have me to do. When I was studying the law, when I was sitting under the feet of Gamaliel, when I was going into church and dragging people out and taking them to prison, and when I got those letters from the chief priest, and probably some of those people who wrote those letters were sitting in that, in that council, the letters that he had from the chief priest authorizing him to go to Damascus to arrest anybody who was the follower of Jesus and bring them bound to Jerusalem so that they might be punished. Paul genuinely thought that he was doing service to God. He thought he was doing what God would require him to do. And so Paul says before these men, I have lived in all conscience, all good conscience before God till this day. And you know, many in that crowd, maybe some of them signed those letters that sent him to Damascus. And they're thinking, yep, that's true. He always did what God wanted him to do. We might not agree with him, but he always did what he thought God wanted him to do. But then what happened? Well, while he's on the way to Damascus with those letters to arrest Christians and to bring them bound to Jerusalem that they might be punished, he met the Lord Jesus Christ. And his conscience was changed. His conscience was transformed. His conscience was informed. When he met the Lord Jesus Christ, he realized that he was persecuting the Lord of glory. Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus Christ, whom you are persecuting. And he saw things differently. His conscience was informed. His conscience was transformed by the truth. He was doing what he genuinely believed that God wanted him to do. But when he met Jesus, he realized that he was all wrong. And that even though he was going according to his conscience, his conscience was excusing him, he realized that he was wrong. And his conscience needed to be informed. His conscience needed to be changed by the truth. And so Paul met the Lord Jesus. His conscience was now informed with the truth that Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is God the Son. That Jesus died on the cross to take the penalty for lawbreakers. He had been trying uh, in good conscience to earn God's salvation through obedience to the law. He had been trying to earn God's salvation by persecuting the church, by destroying Christians. He had been trying to do that which was pleasing to God, and he recognized, he recognized on that road to Damascus that he had fallen short of God's holy standard, that he was a sinner. In fact, he came to know that even though he had done everything that, God, that he thought God wanted him to do according to the law, he now realized that the law showed him to be a sinner and not just any sinner. Now Paul's conscience told him he was the chief of sinners. Even though he had been doing what he sincerely and genuinely believed God would have him to do, now he realized 
that even with his good conscience before God, he was the chief of sinners. And he needed a savior. And that Jesus Christ was that savior. And so he turned from his sin and he put his trust in Jesus Christ alone. He was saved by God's grace through his faith in Christ. And then he had the commission from God to go and to preach Jesus where Jesus was not known. He had a commission from the Lord Jesus Christ, a mission. He was sent out by Jesus to go to the Jews and to teach that salvation is not by the law, but it's by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. He was sent to the Gentiles to preach that salvation is not uh, by, by coming and observing the law and becoming Jewish, but it's by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. He was sent to places where Jesus was not known to preach the name of Jesus. And he did exactly what he believed that God would have him to do when he went to the Jews, thrown out of the synagogues. He went to the Gentiles. And he told the Gentiles, you know, you don't have to become Jewish. You don't have to agree to obey the law to become Christian. And he told the Jews, in good conscience, you don't have to stop being Jews. You don't have to forsake your traditions and your observances in order to become Christians because salvation is by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. And so he, he tells these men boldly, I have done nothing but what I genuinely believe that God would have me to do. Before I was converted, I was doing what I, I believed. I believed wrongly, but I was doing what I believed God wanted me to do. And now since I've become a Christian, I am doing what God, what I sincerely and honestly believe that God would have me to do. I am living with good conscience before God. When I came into the temple with those men from uh, uh, those Jewish believers who were fulfilling their vows, and when I paid their expenses, when I came there in the temple, I was doing that because I genuinely believe that's what God wanted me to do. I have a good conscience. When I preach to the Jews and the Gentiles, when I go from town to town, I am doing what I believe God would have me to do. And so how do you be bold in front of your accusers? Well, number one, you strive to live every day with a good conscience before God. But you also know that your conscience is not an infallible guide. Your conscience has to be informed by the truth. Your conscience has to be informed by the gospel. Your conscience has to be transformed by the good news of Jesus Christ, the message of Jesus. And so before you can live in good conscience before God, you've got to inform your conscience and you inform your conscience with the perfect inerrant word of God. Your, count, your conscience is not an infallible guide for living. The word of God is. And so we need to inform our conscience by the truth the principles of the word of God. And as we seek to do that which is pleasing to God, we apply God's law, we apply God's principles, we apply God's truth to those decisions. So our conscience must be educated, it must be informed, and we must not train ourselves to ignore our conscience. You want to be bold? Be able to stand before your accusers and say, right or wrong, I have lived in good conscience before God until now. And inform your conscience and allow your conscience to be instructed and taught by the word of God. And so the first way that Paul, Paul uh, uh, is able to stand before his accusers with confidence is he has honestly and sincerely done with all of his might, with zeal, exactly what he believed that God would have him to do. And he was allowed in his conscience to be changed and transformed and informed. And as his, his conscience grew, 
and strengthened, he still did what he genuinely believed God would have him to do. I've not violated any laws. I've not violated any principles. I've not done anything wrong. I've strived to live with good conscience before God until now. And then we see a second thing. Second thing is uh, not only was he able to say that he had a good conscience before God, we also see his humility and his teachability. And so when he said this, and this is one of the passages where I wish uh, the Holy Spirit through the pen of Luke would have given us more information, (laughs) we just see in verse 2 that the high priest Annas commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. The high priest Annas commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. God had said, and Paul had said, that he had strived to live in good conscience before God up until now. And so what Paul is really saying, he's saying, your argument's not with me. Your argument's with God. Your quarrel is not with me. Your quarrel is with God. I am doing what I genuinely believe God would have me to do. And so if you're accusing me, you're not accusing me. You're accusing God. God is the one that stands accused before you, not me. And as a result of that, a high priest commanded those who stood stood by Paul to strike him on the mouth. And this word strike is a strong word. It does not just describe a slap, an insult. No, this is a full-fisted blow right in the mouth. And so he commands those those guards, those temple guards, to rear back with all of their might, close their fists, and hit Paul directly in the mouth. They want the, the high priest wants to shut him up. And it seems that this is not just one blow. He commanded those who stood by him to strike him. So each of those guards commanded to full-fisted with all of their might. Strike Paul in the mouth. Try to shut him up. He is accusing us of accusing God by saying that he has lived in good conscience before God. And so Paul boldly stands before them. He states with courage that I have lived In good conscience before God, I have genuinely done what I believe that God would have me to do every day of my life. And you know that. You know me. And the high priest tries to silence him. And how does Paul respond? He responds with anger. Verse 3, Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall, for you sit to judge me according... uh, According to the law, and do you command me to be struck contrary to the law? And so Paul responds to this violence, to being struck in the mouth with the fist of those who are guarding him. He responds with anger and with a curse, with God's judgment. You are supposed to be judging me according to the law. And we talked uh, a few Wednesday nights ago, or last Wednesday, sometime recently, we talked about God's justice. We talked about due process, that God's system of justice was that one who was accused of a crime could not be punished until they had been convicted beyond a reasonable doubt with the testimony of witnesses of the crime that had been committed. 
And here the judge, the high priest, was ordering Paul punished even though he'd not been convicted of a crime. There'd been no testimony. There'd been no witness. He was to be presumed innocent until he was proven guilty. There had been no proof. There had not even been an accusation of a crime. And yet he was commanded to be punished. Hit in the mouth to be silenced. And so he said, you are supposed to judge me according to the law, and yet you command me to be struck contrary to the law. You're supposed to be upholding the law, and here you are violating it. And he calls him a whitewashed wall. And there's two places in Scripture, you know, we believe that uh, the Scripture interprets Scripture. There's two things that Paul could be drawing from here. The first, and probably the most familiar to us, is the words of Jesus in Matthew Matthew's gospel, uh, Matthew 23, 27, he calls the Pharisees whitewashed tombs. And that was an accusation of hypocrisy. You clean up the outside, you make the outside look really pretty and really beautiful, but you care nothing about the inside. You clean up the outside, you want what people can see, you want people to see that you're that you're spiritual and that you're religious and that you're pious and that you do all these things according to the law. You whitewash the outside, but the inside is dead, filled with dead men's bones, unclean, dirty, filthy, nasty. And so it's an accusation of hypocrisy. You clean up the outside, what people can see, but you care nothing about the inside. In fact, the inside is motivated by self-interest, a hatred of God, an opposition to God, wanting to serve yourself and exalt yourself and glorify yourself. And so you clean up the outside so people will think things about you that are not true. It could be an accusation of hypocrisy, Matthew chapter 23, or it could be a pronunciation, an announcement of God's judgment, drawing from the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 13. You may want to keep your finger in Acts and turn to uh, Ezekiel chapter 13 to look at uh, the, the whitewashed wall that Ezekiel speaks about in his day. Ezekiel chapter 13 verse 10. Ezekiel chapter 13 verse 10. Ezekiel says, Because indeed, because they have seduced my people, saying, Peace, when there is no peace, and one builds a wall, and they plaster it with untempered mortar. They plaster it, they whitewash it. They make this beautiful wall. Say to those who plaster it with untempered mortar that it will fall. That will, it will be flooding rain, and you, O great hailstone, shall fall, and a stormy wind shall tear it down. Surely when the wall has fallen, will it not be said to you, where is the mortar with which you plastered it? Therefore, thus says the Lord, I will cause a stormy wind to break forth in my fury, and there shall be flooding rain in my anger and great hailstones in fury to consume it. So I will break down the wall that you have plastered with untempered mortar and bring it down to the ground so that its foundation will be uncovered. It will fall and you will be consumed in the midst of it. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. Thus will I accomplish my wrath on the wall and those who have plastered it with untempered mortar. And I will say to you, the wall is no more, nor those who plastered it. That is the prophets of Israel who prophesied concerning Jerusalem. 
and who see visions of peace for her when there is no peace, says the Lord God. And so there, uh, untempered mortar, another way of saying whitewashed walls. They made them white and shiny. They built this wall. But the Lord says he will destroy it. And so I believe that that's probably the most likely thing that Paul is addressing here, the prophecy of Ezekiel. He is announcing judgment against this council, against the chief priest, against the city of Jerusalem, who are proclaiming peace, peace, when there is no peace. They have rejected the Christ. They have rejected the Messiah. They are rejecting his messengers. And Paul announces God's judgment against them, against their city, and against their religious system that has rejected the law of God. He announces God's curse upon them. And so he's, he's bold. He's bold because of his clear conscience. And he stands up for his right and he condemns wrongdoing. He calls out the violation of the law. But then we also see his humility and his teachable spirit. When the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth, Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall, for you said to judge me according to law, and you do command me to be struck contrary to law. And look at verse 4. Those who stood by said, Do you revile God's high priest? Are you speaking against the one who has been set apart to be the high priest? Are you reviling the priest? And look what Paul said in verse 5. We see his humility. Paul said, I, I did not know, brethren, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. And so Paul did not know. And, you know, the, the event had been convened by the commander. The high priest was not in charge. Not really. It was not apparent who was the high priest, who was the one in charge. And Paul just spoke against the violation of the law, the violation of his rights. But when he was told that the one that he announced God's curse upon, or that he accused of hypocrisy, was the high priest, Paul humbled himself. And he admitted his error. He admitted his fault. Even though he announced this curse with good conscience, when he was informed that he was wrong, he humbly admitted his fault. And so we see that Paul had a teachable spirit. And when he realized the truth, he admitted that he had acted in error, that he had violated the principle and he had spoken against the ruler of God's people. Oh, what an important principle. You know, the ruler might be evil, wicked, unjust. He might command the violation of the law when he is supposed to be obeying the law. But all who are in authority are God's ministers. 
We need not necessarily respect the man, but we need to respect the office and the position of authority. And Paul admitted his error. He admitted his fault. He was humble. He was teachable. He allowed his conscience to be informed. And his conscience to be transformed by the truth. And he still sought to live in good conscience. Now his conscience accused him. And he admitted his fault in humility. So we see two, two things that enabled Paul. There were two characteristics as he stood before his accusers with boldness and courage. He was able to stand before them boldly. All my life, I have genuinely and sincerely done what I believe God would have me to do. I wasn't always right, but I always did what I believed that God would have me to do. And as God has informed my conscience, he has been humble and teachable, seeking to strengthen his conscience, to build his conscience up, to inform his conscience of the truth. And when he knew truth, he humbly admitted that he'd been wrong and sought now to do what he believed would be pleasing in God's sight, what God would have him to do. And so the applications for us, you know, if you ever stand before someone who is accusing you or ridiculing you or, or, or defaming you, live in such a way that you will be able to say, I have lived in all good conscience before God till now. Genuinely, sincerely do what you believe that God would have you to do. Do what you think, what you believe is right, what God would have you to do. Do it with zeal. So when people accuse you of doing wrong, you can say, I've, I've tried to live in good conscience before God. But also understand that your conscience is not an inerrant, infallible guide. Your conscience can lead you astray. Paul was genuinely doing it. He thought he was providing service to God by persecuting the church. But his conscience was informed by the truth. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And Paul was teachable. He was humble. He allowed his conscience to be informed with the truth. And when he knew the truth, he adjusted his conscience, and then he just as zealously tried to do what he now knew was right in the eyes of God. He tried to live with a good conscience. But he was teachable. And so we need to be able to say, I've lived in all good conscience before God until today. But we also need to constantly be informing our conscience. Knowing that our conscience is not infallible, it's not inerrant. The only inerrant, infallible guide for faith and practice is the Word of God. And so how do we educate our conscience? Through the Word of God. Hiding God's Word in our heart that we might not sin against Him. Allowing His Word to be a light unto our path, a lamp unto our feet. Inform your conscience. Educate your conscience. Strengthen your conscience. Fill your conscience with the laws and the principles of God, what God requires of us. And then live according to that with all your might. But also be humble and teachable when you're confronted that you're wrong. 
confess, admit it, receive the cleansing that Jesus provided for us on the cross. So do what you think is right, but always inform your conscience to the truth of God's word. And then when you're wrong, let your conscience be informed and then do what you think is right. But you know the perfect way to live with a good conscience before God is to have your sins forgiven, your sins cleansed, knowing that we have all sinned. We, we did what we thought was right, but we've fallen short of God's holy standard. But in God's grace, he became a man in Christ Jesus. Jesus lived a sinless life and he died on the cross. He died on the cross to take away our guilt. He died on the cross to take away our shame. He died on the cross to pay the penalty for all of those times that we failed, that we did wrong. All the times that we knew what to do right and we did not do it. We, we knew what we should not do and we did it. And even for those times that we thought we were doing right, but we were wrong, <laughs> Jesus died on the cross to take the penalty, the punishment that we deserve. He takes away our shame. He takes away our guilt. He takes away our sin. And God raised him from the dead to show that that sacrifice was accepted. And our consciences can be cleansed. No shame, no guilt. And we can say, I've lived in good conscience before God because my sins have been taken away. My guilt has been paid for. And I've been washed, washed clean in the blood of the Lamb. And I stand before God with a clean and purified conscience because of God's grace through my faith in Christ alone. Let's pray together. Lord God, we pray that you grant us grace. And Lord, I pray that you would grant us the courage and the boldness to do what we believe that you would have us to do. That we would be zealous in doing what we believe, what we think is right. And God, I pray that you grant us the grace and the per perseverance to always be about informing our conscience, knowing that we're limited, our understanding is limited. Many times we might be wrong, and we might think this is what you want us to do, but it's not. So Lord, help us to be students of your word and to always be informing our conscience, strengthening our conscience, building it up with your truth, the only inerrant, infallible guide to faith and practice to life and God we pray that you would grant us humble teachable spirits that when we're confronted with wrong that we would evaluate it according to your word your principle and be really be humble ready to admit to confess receive the cleansing that Jesus provided for us on the cross and then get up and genuinely do what we believe that you would have us to do Lord help us to be bold and courageous not to be intimidated or ashamed or afraid when we are accused of being your witnesses. Grant us boldness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, I'm going to invite you to take out your hymnal and turn with me to hymn 600. Now may the God of peace, who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, may he make you complete in every good work to do his will, working in you what is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory 
forever and ever. Amen.